I also felt like I didn't need to retire because now I still just run. And so I'd like to qualify for Olympic trials in the marathon. Um, and so for me, it's, it's really just about playing outside and I just really enjoy training every single day. So I feel like I'll never actually retire. This episode of the Smart Athlete Podcast is brought to you by Solpre, skincare for athletes. Whether you're in the gym, on the mats, on the road, or in the pool, we protect your skin so you're more comfortable in your own body. To learn more, go to soulpre.com. Welcome to the Smart Athlete Podcast. I'm your host, Jesse Funk. Today, I have another special episode where I've got two people hanging out with me. Um, it's always nice when I get multiple people to talk to because um, then I get to talk less and I get more information. So it always makes my job a little bit easier. Um, Dan is a former Division One runner, um, former pro triathlete. I'm going to ask him about that story because I'm sure there's a story there. Um, he has his PhD in integrative physiology. He's currently working as a biomechanics researcher, and we're definitely going to get into that. Um, Melissa is also a former D1 runner. She's currently training with the Boulder Track Club. She has her master's in integrative physiology, if I remember right. I didn't check that before we got going. Is currently working on her PhD. Um, they're both coaches and run the Velocity Canyon Endurance Project. Welcome to the show, Dan Feeney and Melissa Mazzo. Thanks, Thanks for having, having us. us. <laughs> and you just said nice uh, did you practice that did did that just come naturally we've been practicing most of the time oh yeah i mean we're in the middle of quarantine so got lots like, of time to spend three, doing that kind of stuff two, yeah. one okay <laughs> matt do, do either of you have a musical background at all oh no no <laughs> okay okay all the, the reason i ask is because there's like so if you play in an ensemble of any sort, you get used to basically uh, whoever's leading does this breath where they go. And then as they come down, you get the downbeat and everybody goes at the same time. So I was just like, maybe, maybe that's your trick. Like yeah. <laughs> get that musical background. Um, so Dan, I'll hop back. You were telling me before we got going. Uh, so you raced as a professional triathlete for, I, th I think four years. I think that's what I read. Um, and you feel like you weren't good enough to have a formal retirement. What What's the story there? Um, yeah, so I, Melissa and I met running at University of Delaware. And at the end of my sophomore year, they actually decided to cut the men's program. Um, okay. So I was faced, I was thinking about transferring because um, I just really wanted to keep running. I was super into it. I felt like I had a lot of untapped potential. But at the same time, um, or USA Triathlon began what was called the Collegiate Recruitment Program. Yeah. to take college runners or swimmers and um, if they had a background the other so I grew up swimming basically until I was 17 and I started running so mm -hmm. instead of transferring I basically just started training for triathlon then I did a little stint at the Olympic Training Center kind of try out see how it goes and then ended up racing mostly ITU triathlon major league triathlon and then a few half Ironmans over the next, yeah, four or five years, um, I did it in conjunction with while I was doing my master's in the beginning, my PhD, um, mm -hmm. felt like it was a really nice balance between the two things. I never would say I really like fully jumped into only doing triathlon, but um, right. I had a couple of results where I was super excited about it. I also felt like I didn't need to retire because now I still just run. And so I'd like to qualify for Olympic trials in the marathon. Um, and so for me, it's it's really just about playing outside. And I just really enjoy training every single day. So I feel like I'll never actually retire. Yeah. So I have to go on a little personal diversion here. Uh, what what year did you join the CRP? Uh, 
probably 2012 would be my guess. Okay. Like okay. So the first did year. Did you do? Did you go straight to the draft legals and qualify, or did you do nationals that year at all? Um, I did age group nationals and then qualified with an, one of those EDR races, the elite development races that year. Yeah. Yeah. You, you didn't. You didn't happen to go to Barb's clinic after the race in nationals that year, did you? Um, I went to one before the race, actually. See, and that's where I would have missed you because that was my first clinic with Barb was after that race. Nice. That's awesome. Small yeah, way. so I, I was I, I, I refer to myself as like a tag along with the CRP group because uh-huh. um, like I didn't hit like the qualifying, like the A standard running or anything. So I was, I was like high 15s in my 5K time. But Barb allowed me to kind of come along and be with that group. So I was like, I knew when I saw your name, I was like, gosh, that sounds familiar for some reason. And I just don't know. Um, so apparently we just missed <laughs> crossing paths at that point in time. Um, so, you, you, um, so one thing on, you know, I'm whoever's listening, kind of catching you up. One thing Barb mentions is that there is, uh, so Barb Lindquist is a former uh, head of USAT's collegiate recruitment program. And one thing Barbara always mentions is there is a big jump from like amateur triathlon to pro triathlon, even if you easily qualify. So can you tell me about, you know, the transition from one to the other, like kind of what your experience was? Yeah, I definitely was pretty green. Um, like I was 20, actually, I think I turned 21 the year that I turned pro, but I only raced amateur for three months, which was maybe good and bad. Um, I was in Delaware still at the time, so there wasn't um, a ton. It's not like we live in Boulder now, so I would have a really good idea of what the scene was like. Being in Delaware, I really didn't have a great idea of exactly how fast people were biking. I just knew I could run pretty well, and I was pretty decent at swimming. Um, So, I mean, my first pro race, I actually still did on a road bike with clip-ons, and and then I raced ITU, but for me, it was just everything was faster, like showed up to the first race. And I just remember being like totally overwhelmed with the routines that people had um, in draft legal. Actually, my first pro race was the one that Hunter Kemper broke his elbow at uh, like okay. months before the Olympics. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I first off remember getting out of the water suddenly like a minute behind the leaders, which was not super exciting. And then um, right. being, okay, well, draft legal bike is probably going to be pretty easy, but just absolutely hammering for 40k and then getting off and having to run 10k and suddenly not being nearly as fast of a 10k runner as I thought it was so yeah that and then the non-drafting world just for pros uh like the swim is so much faster if you're not swimming at you know the front end you're not going to be riding with anyone and then the riding is just full on because you don't have anybody around you a lot of times you know the, the drafting rules are a little bit more strict so Right. Definitely jumped into the deep end. I would probably do it differently if I uh, had this past view of how I have it now. Maybe got another year of biking under my belt. But it was, I also really just like kind of going to the most extreme ends of things like, <laughs> at first and then figure out uh, how to go from there. See, that's like that's that's the one thing that, you know, and you see it, too, even with Hunter Kemper and, and you know, all the big names, John Ferdano and all the guys now or ladies really um, it's like we, we have this kind of on the outside looking in, have this kind of like idealized version and you can watch like I, um, they streamed Barb's Olympic race on Facebook the other day. So I like watched the whole thing uh-huh. and it's like you watch them and, and because they're so good at what they do, it's like they make it look easy. So yeah, but easy. you know that they're just like 
crushing it the whole way and you experienced it firsthand yeah. so it, it it's all i always like hearing from you know pros and former pros are like no man like even if i'm in great shape it's still just brutal the whole way through yeah for sure i mean i definitely experienced it a bunch of different times my first year we did um itu world duathlon championships which were drafted mm-hmm. so sort of our crp group thought well at least everyone ran in college background so it should be no problem but i mean running a 10k in low 30 minutes and then jumping on a bike um and then running another 5k was also just you know threw us into the deep end and so nobody painful. was really ready so it is really amazing when you watch those top athletes and they do look yeah. fluid um, and effortless and to get to that point is a really beautiful thing yeah so melissa I, so that i mean it begs the question how did dan not pull you in and be like talk to barb and like oh you know, he think about it and <laughs> but uh i take things a little bit more slowly and i got <laughs> okay. into triathlon uh after we moved out here to boulder after i kind of saw how amazing all the athletes were around here and mm. had kind of followed his journey through the whole professional track of triathlon and mm. So I opted for the collegiate club team and okay. tried it out at CU for two years. Um, I also have zero background swimming. So okay. he basically taught me a few years ago from scratch. I yeah. like doggy paddle to the end of the pool, maybe on a good day. Um, oh. So that was super cool. We got involved with a local master swim group and mm. I started in the slowest lane with the 80 year olds who've been doing this forever. And they <laughs> kind of taught me the ropes. Um, yeah. I actually ended that two years of doing triathlon with like a quadruple duathlon type thing um, at collegiate nationals that year. The swim was canceled. So okay. it was a, an Olympic race, a sprint race and a relay. That was a lot of fun. And was so that, was that back to back to back or was that multiple days? It was uh, two days. So the Olympic okay. on one day or uh, the sprint on one day and then the Olympic and the relay on the second day. Okay. Okay. And so, you like, so, like clearly you survived. You're not dead. Yeah. So you made it through. Oh, well, I couldn't. How was the recovery after that? After that. Do what? I couldn't run for about two weeks after that. It was just like totally smashed. But it was awesome. It was such a good experience. And was that was that the end where you're like, okay, I blew up all the like I I put all the energy I could into this weekend and now I'm done forever? Or was like, how was the transition from there? I realized I was super excited when the swim was canceled and (laughs) then every race I was just really looking forward to the running. So I decided, you know what, I have a lot of running goals that I still want to chase down. So kind of switched back over. At that point we were already training with the Boulder track club a Mm -hmm. few times a week. And it was like, you know what, we're just going to go full on towards getting back on the track, running fast 5k, doing the short, hard stuff. Are you doing like pretty typical training schedule as far as like kind of mirroring what you did in college, similar number of days, similar number of speed work, all that kind of stuff? Yeah, it's uh, it's been pretty cool. Running with the group is honestly just the best. So mm-hmm. do workouts on Tuesdays and Fridays, and then we have mm-hmm. a long on Sundays that is just open to anyone. Um, so that's keeping it pretty similar to college. And then uh, we actually have a Husky who loves to run. Okay. So most of our easy days are running with her. Um, but in college, I actually had four different coaches for my four years. And so I spent a lot of the time injured or like 
trying to adjust. Not sure, right? Because there's no there's no unified vision for the whole point. Yeah. Right. So it's been awesome, you know, staying with a group consistently for the past few years, and we kind of write each other's training programs a little bit too if we want to try mm-hmm. something new. Uh, so that's a lot of fun, just having someone to bounce things off of. So I mean, you don't do you not you don't argue with each other. You're not like. You're like, Dan, that's a little too tough, or Dan, that's a little too easy, or like yelling at Melissa, like, hey, I can handle more than that. Like, it's, you know, I, I don't need an easy, easy day. Like, do you, do you deal with that, or is it just a simple, like, okay, okay, coach, like, that's what I'm doing today? Oh, that's funny. We, we have a good back and forth because we yeah. both, we both um, readily acknowledge that we respond to things differently. Like, right. um, for me, it's just like long, grinding tempo runs, long uphill stuff. I, I could do that every week and I get pretty strong off that. Whereas Melissa's on the very other end of the spectrum. I just want to do like 200s, hill sprints. Okay. I really need that top end stuff to feel good. But I've also been training for shorter races. So it's a good compliment. We're yeah. kind of not overlapping that much in terms of our goals. So it's yeah. a definitely a fresh perspective when we look at each other's training. And I think it yeah. keeps from getting into one rut too easily. Like for me, I really hate going and running hard 400s or 200s, but Melissa's doing it. It's something that, you know, even if you're training for a marathon or trail race, you should do. So mm-hmm. it ends up balancing out pretty well. Yeah. I just lost my train of thought. Um, Dan, are you training by yourself all the time, or are you also with the Boulder Track Club? I also run the Boulder Track Club. So we've got a really nice group of guys and girls that um, everyone works full-time. We just... Uh, I mean, when you are commuting to work, um, we start our hard sessions at 7 a.m. on Tuesdays and Fridays and uh, then, you know, get done in enough time to get to work. And I agree, just like Melissa said, like, I don't think I would be nearly as motivated as I am without that group. We're not meeting right now, but we still, you know, have a Strava group and we still have a group text and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. I know, like, I went to the track this morning um, to do some intervals and just for no reason at all. I was like, man, I really miss my guys today. The guys I trained with in college. I mean, it's been like nine years now, but for whatever reason, it just struck me this morning. Just, it's a nice, it's a nice day here. It was like 60, sunny. Oh yeah. It, it smells like track. You know, oh, yeah. do you guys get that? Like I always wait And my girlfriend makes fun of me. She doesn't come from an athletic background. So I'm just like, it doesn't smell like track season yet. Like yeah. <laughs> the track has to be wet, a little rainy, like 55 to 60, somewhere around there. And then I'm like, now it smells like track season. Yeah, it's a beautiful smell. Like early spring mornings, definitely get that. Um, we yeah. had one of those days this week, I feel like. Definitely a lot of nostalgia too. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's all mixed in there. And you're just like, it, something about, at least for me, you know, starting high school going through college just having that kind of cycle for eight years essentially it's like the seasons to me aren't uh you know spring summer fall winter it's like no it's cross-country indoor outdoor triathlon like those are my seasons yeah Yeah. (laughs) so um dan i want to talk about your uh work so you work as a biomechanics researcher, I, I think, on predominantly on footwear. Is that correct? Yeah, exactly. Okay, so tell me a little bit about what you do. For sure. So I work for a company called Boa Technology. Um, you've probably seen it on cycling shoes, the dials, um, or snowboard boots. We also are in tennis shoes, running shoes, um, kind of all over the, the place now. Um, starting about two years ago, which is around when I started at Boa, 
Um, and then even a few years before that, sort of the idea was to transform the company from just like a, a, cl a closure system or like replacing laces to saying, how can we fundamentally change how shoes fit for someone? And mm -hmm. if we make something fit better, can you improve their performance? So, you know, if you think of any of the road racing shoes, like the super shoes that have come out now, if it doesn't mm -hmm. fit as well, then maybe you're losing some of that potential. Maybe there's actually a little right. bit better there. So my job was basically to come in and work with uh, one other guy at the time, Brett, and then oh, we have a third person on our team, Kate, and build a biomechanics lab. So we have a 2,700 square foot lab space and basically any shoe that goes to market that isn't just a lace replacement. So if you look at like the New Balance 1500 um, or the Saucony switchback for running shoes, um, you'll see that they're totally different. They don't have laces on the top. They have laces on the side of the shoe. And we've tried to design mm -hmm. straps and materials that will better conform to a wider shape of feet. And mm -hmm. we'll actually test all those shoes in the lab. So um, any shoe that goes to market, the goal is to have that tested in the lab and make sure that it's providing some sort of benefit to the athlete. We're not just doing it to do it. Okay. So um, I, this is my actually my first... It, cognitive introduction to boa so okay. help me get up to speed yeah um so are you so you're testing um basically the fit or the last of the different shoes mm -hmm. um for various companies like you're like kind of an independent consultant it's interesting right like it, it would sound like we're an independent consultant but we're actually an ingredient brand so if you think of like okay Gortex, um okay it, like brands will buy at the factory level the ingredients to make the shoe. Gotcha. Uh, what's unique about us is we do have this product service where we don't just want to give brands parts. We want to actually be involved in the development of that shoe. Um, okay. And so for cycling shoes, for example, for the longest time, um, they had just basically been, okay, let's you know use Velcro, let's use a ratchet system. And then about 10 years ago, Boa came in and said, what if we do it differently? And now we're trying to do that again and say, what if there's a totally radically new way we could actually wrap around the foot? And if it does fit better, we should be able to test some sort of performance derivative there. Okay. So I'm, I'm with you now. The, the likeness to Gore-Tex makes things a lot simpler. <laughs> um, it's it's I just how it is. I, I mean, I, I worked in a shoe store for a number of years. Um, so I was like, I'm familiar with all the components and kind of some, you know, fitting shoes to people, but not actually the development stage, um, which is pretty neat. I mean, how do you, do you get to work there just because you're like, I'm a really cool guy and I know, like, I, I you know, I know about engineering and I can run or like, how, how does that inroad, what is the inroad into, a, you know, a technology company like that? For sure. I think I'm super lucky um, because I think a lot of people that study biomechanics or physiology at some level probably would really enjoy a job like this. There mm -hmm. are just aren't a ton of, of them exactly in the footwear development world. Um, after I did my PhD in integrative physiology, I really specialized in like very esoteric stuff, like mathematical models of neurons. Um, okay. But really, you do your PhD to learn how to learn, which is a, you know kind of a cliche. But from there, I, I started working for a tech startup in Silicon Valley for a little bit. And mm -hmm. then um, this opportunity at BOA came up and it was sort of just a really cool dream come true to say, let's take these engineering and physiology perspectives that I have and let's apply it to footwear. And so especially some of the trail running initiatives that we have, some of the cycling and ski initiatives that we have are super exciting because they're sports that I do as well. So it does help to have that background in those sports. Mm -hmm. I know 
I can narrow down where I think a performance benefit might be. Like if you're running down a really steep trail, um, the fit of a shoe actually starts becoming super important. Mm-hmm. Um, or especially if you're trying to change direction really quickly on the trail. And so having that right. athletic background definitely does help too. So it, I'll get a little shoe nerdy here, I guess. So <laughs> if you're listening, I apologize if this isn't interesting, but so when you're, when you're talking about trying to like, you know, fit a last, how do you, um, how do you compensate for basically foot swelling and, and change of, you know, foot size during exercise? And obviously like, it's going to be different depending on application. Like say, I say if I'm going out for a half hour run versus like my friend Pat going out for 30 miles, like he's going to have a lot different kind of issues than I am because I'm simply not going to have the duration of time to have that increased swelling. So like, do you guys, do you guys, or how do you guys deal with like changing foot shape as exercise goes on? Yeah, it's a really good question. And there are a bunch of different ways that you could go about answering it. Um, I guess starting at the very beginning is depending on the nature of the shoe. So we have worked in a lot of trail shoes where we expect it to be a more ultra trail type user. So mm-hmm. trail trail ultras, et cetera. And so definitely there's going to be swelling. There's also just going to be a desire maybe to change the fit during that race. So if mm-hmm. you're going hill versus downhill, you might want a different fit. You might want to ratchet it down before you go down a hill. Okay. Um, that's one of the nice things about Boa is it's more modular. So just by turning okay. it down, either way you can actually increase or decrease the tension on the shoe but by okay. just small amount you yeah know? by like, just one right compared to laces it's a lot more precise for sure right i actually think now now that you're mentioning you said you mentioned ratchet and i was like i think i actually think i've seen those on the cycling shoes um yeah. i can't remember all where i was maybe it maybe raced in 70.3 santa cruz i was with my friend kevin he was looking at a pair uh, i can't remember which manufacturer had them yeah, but he was really yeah, excited at the time. About eighty percent of cycling brands will sell them. You see them less in triathlon, but they're still pretty common. And a lot of the top pros will, in longer distance races, will use a shoe with a Boa dial just because it generally fits a bit better. Yeah. Um, the other thing we do is we we have really low friction components. So, like you said, if your foot's swelling over the course of a run, um, it might not necessarily mean that you want less fit in your midfoot. You just might want some room to accommodate your toes. So okay. we'll try to intentionally design how the shoe is actually closing so that um, as you move, the shoe can kind of conform to your foot as it changes over time. So for the longest time, people measure their feet by just standing on a brannic. Right. But when you're moving, the actual morphology of your foot will change. Right. So that's one of the cool things about our designs is because it's really low friction, it can actually move with your foot a little bit. Okay. Um, and it's hard just using my hands. I can't really uh, explain it, but <laughs> if you look up some of the shoes that I was mentioning, um, I think you can kind of see how it's a different way to approach fitting a, a foot rather than just tying on top of the foot, getting it really tight in one spot. This is trying to get a more uniform fit. Do you guys, because you're doing all this testing, do you have a situation ever where you're like, they'll give you, you know, a new shoe or I, I don't know what, do you get pre-production shoes or post-production uh, we usually now we, uh, it depends. Um, when we're working with brands that we already work with, we do pre-production stuff. Okay. So making sure something. Okay. So do you ever get, they'll send you a pre-production model and it's just like whatever, you know, the other part is obviously optimizing, um, the upper and what the upper is made out of and the various layers of the upper, but do you ever get them and you're just like, there's, there's weak points in the upper where you're like, the you know the durability of the shoe is going to be down because of the material they're using and like i don't know whether that's in your 
purview as a company, but just do you ever get to see kind of outside things like that and say, hey, you might want to check this out and see that change as well? Yeah, that's one of the really cool things because with the brands we work with, we were pretty deeply connected. So 18 mm-hmm. months before a shoe goes to market, hopefully we're included in those first design briefs. And one of the first questions and one of the first capabilities that Boa had was durability of our system. So any shoe that has a Boa system on it is guaranteed for life of the shoe. Um, So we will test any configuration. And by configuration, I mean like, what are the angles that these laces are going through and where on the shoe are these laces being placed? Um, We will test that to make sure it adheres to our standards so that it's not gonna break on you. Now on the flip side, our newer kind of biomechanical testing will include both quantitative data, so you know, running, changing direction, whatever in the shoe, but also qualitative feedback. And so we're at the point where we're working with brands and saying, hey, this isn't, maybe this is great or this isn't great and here's why. Let's fix it for the next round. So that's, a lot of times that's the goal is to make sure that anything that does get to market improves fit, improves performance, then people will qualitatively like it. Okay, okay. So my my next big question here is Melissa. So since you are working your PhD in, I'll say a similar field. It's the same umbrella. I don't know if you're specializing in the same field. Um, are are you gonna take all of Dan's information and build a competing company? <laughs> no, no, just kidding. <laughs> Honestly, when he got this job, I was like, "You are raising the bar so high for me to now graduate and find a job that's as cool." especially if you want to stay here in Colorado, but uh, no, it's awesome. I love, uh, you know, being in a field where, like Dan kind of mentioned, you study something so specific and this tiny little pocket of science uh, for your PhD. And I get to see how he's applying what he learned to uh, the same field, but like this whole different side of it. Um, Mm -hmm. It's really awesome. Also just seeing how a company applies science and you know, you're the only true scientist. Now there are two of you. So you have like two true scientists at BOA and mm-hmm. they're translating their research and, you know, how they think about all these concepts to a company that's really focused on the marketing side of it, uh, just right. interacting with brands and knowing how to present it. And it's definitely helpful looking forward. So are you, so does that make you more applied focused or you want to be more academic? Mm, I would say this is making me want to go into industry for sure. Okay. Okay. Uh, I've enjoyed like teaching and doing research is awesome. But if I can take those skills and apply it to, you know, a company that's really goal driven and moves forward pretty quickly, that'd be pretty sweet. Yeah. And well, it's like just on a basic level. And Dan, I I think you get this feeling or give this feeling across. It's just like, I always find it, like just this nerdy level of really cool and vast. Like I, I, we won't do it the whole time cause it'll get really boring for everybody else. But like, I just like, I love talking about like, Hey, let's talk about like what you worked on your PhD and how you're applying it to all these products and like improving consumer. Pro- I like, cause I run a couple of companies do don't make very complicated products in, in comparison to Boa at all. But it's just like being able to take some kind of expertise and apply it and help people like, that's my jam. Like I love doing that. So when it, like I get to hear about people like you who are taking something at a much higher level and doing the same thing, I'm just like, that's so awesome. Like <laughs> I just get excited hearing about it. Um, so I, are you 
planning on staying there long term, I would assume. Yeah, definitely. I mean, like I said, it's honestly in this field of of what I like have studied and everything, I'd say it's kind of a dream job. Um, There are things that allow me to continue exploring and sort of pushing the knowledge boundaries that I have. A lot of times we do some really small sample size testing, for example. So one of my other passions is statistics and we have to use some pretty complex stats to do something and communicate to people in a really simple way though, um, Mm -hmm. which I think is really beautiful, right? Like we might actually under the hood be doing something that's pretty complicated, sort of the same type of algorithms that are using for self-driving cars or what have you. But we're just Mm -hmm. trying to say, hey, with this level of confidence, we want to know we actually can affect your performance. So yeah, I I think it's really cool. I think if you look at Boa as a brand in some of the spaces like court sports and trail running, I think you're going to see it growing in the next couple of years, which Mm -hmm. is a really fun part to be a part of. And I'm backing up just slightly, but like, I mean, that's a a sense of, I'll say mastery, but just like, that's when you know somebody actually knows what they're talking about. So they can take a very complicated subject and dilute it down to like the most simple, very understandable thing, right. you know. Um, I don't know, you guys, have, since you have finished your PhD and working on your PhD, you've probably come across professors that at some point or another are very, very confusing because they're so deep into their field, they can't understand what it's like anymore to not know anything about that. Yeah. Right. <laughs> and you're like, I can't follow you. And it's like, if they could get just to that next level and see back to the beginning, that you know things would become much much easier for everybody involved totally right i think that's Um, one of the things about industry is you sort of have to see the forest and the trees right to keep track of everything and and be able to understand how you're going to explain this to somebody like you said i worked at a running store too so how is the kid that's working at a running store going to explain this to the runner that's coming in how are you going to explain it at a biomechanics conference and and all that's really exciting yeah and communicating that is is tough because it's like you know, again, just from that that running store standpoint, it's like the kid or or me in this point that yeah, starting out, it's just like, yeah, it's it just should be like, it's got these cool boa dials on it, and the guy's like, why is that? Why is that? Why do I care? I don't like dials. I just want laces because nobody yeah. likes change. Right. So they, <laughs> they have to be like, no, actually, if you use these, they could do such and such, yeah. and yeah, communicate that. So it's shoes have so many different kinds of tech in them now it's like well why do i care yeah you know, if, it's, if it's got this or that um melissa i'm gonna come back to you here in a second but i want to finish on kind of this thought um so obviously a lot of people are talking about uh nike's next percent in that whole series have you guys worked on any of those shoes yeah i can't say exactly which ones we haven't haven't have worked on haven't worked on just because That's of ideas and stuff like that we've right. definitely um, have worked on with some different brands, some different shoes that uh, have those attributes where we're talking about different types of foam that give more energy return. I was also uh, one of the subjects in that first Nike study. So okay. 4% study that was done at CU. Um, I was one of the subjects. Roger Crom's lab did it. One of my really good friends uh, was, or all, both of our friends yeah. were invest- investigators in it. I like to joke that I was maybe one of the slowest runners because uh, it was during my triathlon days, and you had to have run, I think, under 31 minutes for a 10K in the last year. So I think I just mm-hmm. stopped there. But, um, I mean, it's a really fascinating area. I think running performance is really easy to quantify uh, for linear running, right? Like, if you can make it easier, then awesome. 
I think right. what's really exciting is when you take that into the trail space or you take it in other spaces, how do you quantify performance? Because mm -hmm. now it's a little right. bit multifactorial. So that's where I get really passionate. I think the, the super shoes and the roads are really cool, but I can't wait to see how this translates and trickles down into other sports and other shoes. Yeah. Like what's the next super trail shoe look like? Right, right. So here's what I struggle with. And I've been meaning to make a video on this and my opinion for a long time. I don't even know if I have an opinion. So I, I've talked about this with uh, my friend Todd. Actually, one of Barb's athletes. He's been on the podcast a couple times, episode three and twenty-nine. For anybody who wants to go check out Todd, but um, he wears he wears I can't remember which of that series of shoes, and he like he like set his five k, ten k, and half marathon PRs all on the same day by running a half marathon. Um, he was like, that shouldn't happen, <laughs> but he was just like, you know, as long as they're still allowed, I'm gonna wear them. Like it would be a disadvantage not to wear them. So I'm just wondering if you have either of you have an opinion on is there a line, where's the line in terms of technology versus all the human spirit or, you know, the human body itself in terms of improving performance? Yeah, I think it's super interesting. And I'd like to hear Melissa's perspective as well. Uh, <laughs> one way that I think of it is like if, you know, if you boil it down to energy return, not no material because of thermodynamics is going to give you 100 right. energy return so if you right. think maybe our our maximal ability is 100 percent, even though mm -hmm. we, know we, we don't have any pumps that can do that these are just getting us closer to that but okay it's still human running now that being said there are a bunch of other attributes you know patents and things like that that may cause competitors to be at a disadvantage i think putting all of that aside i love innovation in sport and i think um the weird thing is the line is blurry. Now, if somebody had springs in their shoes, I think we can all agree that that's maybe not the same sport. Um, right. So acknowledging the line is blurry, but I think the reductionist argument of, oh, it's improving time, so that's bad. So then I think we all have to go back to running barefoot. Um, right. We all run in the same exact shoe, but even then, humans experience different um, improvements based on a given shoe, and that's been shown forever. So for me, I, I think one of the cool things I heard it an interview where somebody was saying, hey, it's making running fun for me. And mm -hmm. I think if we take that regard, I'm all for it. That's fair. Well, yeah. so do you have any thoughts? Uh, pretty similar, but I just keep coming back to the point that um, really, if we start drawing a hard line somewhere, mm -hmm. then if we look back in time, where have we crossed another imaginary line that we drew at some point? Right. Um, right. And like you said, if it's making people faster, but it's not a completely inhuman amount of time to get faster by, right. then is it just like any other training modality that we learn to use? What if we never had, uh, you know, certain aspects of how people change their diet to improve performance? Right. Uh, we didn't have caffeine, which is another kind of blurry line, right? Right. So I think it's a really tough uh, debate to get into, mm -hmm. especially if you have people taking different sides. Um, I'm kind of interested to see how it moves forward. Yeah. Talking to science people about it. Um, I'm not sure how much I like talking to hard headed, you know, policy, <laughs> like where, where we apply to sport is what's tricky because right. we don't want to create unfair competitions, but. Right. I, I'll, I'll be, um, partisan here and say, I am pro no caffeine. Um, 
I actually think caffeine is cheating. Um, but that's just because it goes back to a point, Dan, you mentioned about shoes and energy return. Like we can't get 100% energy return. And you mentioned springs being, you know, that would be cheating. I wanted to make some kind of joke about the Nike shocks, but I couldn't figure out how to get it in there. Um, but but that's because if we had springs, you could theoretically get more return, you know, than you really should, right? So it's like that's the hard line that we're after, though. In in a perfect physical situation, you get a hundred percent of the energy back out that you put in, no mm-hmm. more, no less. So I think that that may be the easiest way to define what the hard line is is if you're able to somehow, you know, in the case of like people that are cheating, we, we see this, they put motors in their bikes. Right. Oh yeah. <laughs> you know, you're going at more than a hundred percent capacity. Mm-hmm. Clearly that's wrong. Mm-hmm. So I think that's a fair line to draw. And that's, I think a good summation of why I'm not a fan of caffeine because caffeine helps you do things that your body wouldn't necessarily do on its own. That's another one that's hard line to draw because Where's the difference between like caffeine and supplements and, mm-hmm. you know, what exactly is and isn't okay. Um, that's where the USADA comes in, in hand. <laughs> but uh, it's, it's just always interesting to see different people's perspectives. Dan, I'm glad you shared that. Cause I've, I've struggled with next percents and that kind of thing. Cause we've seen such a dramatic improvement mm-hmm. with that technology being introduced mm-hmm. that it's almost like my gut reaction is less well, unfair. Mm-hmm. you know but that's not necessarily logical either i yeah i wrestled with that i think when the um the alpha flies came out for mm-hmm. trials um my first thought was that's that's too weird but then i had to really think grapple with myself and say well why mm-hmm. um i like what you said where you draw a line of caffeine i think if you can come up with a line and have a reason for it across all of these dimensions of performance mm-hmm. then that's perfect um, and then we can debate whether those lines are arbitrary or if they're in the right place or not. But at least right. you have grounding rules. And so I think it's a really fun and interesting debate. Yeah. Uh, the but, other major problem is that we just can't test all these different shoes before they go through the whole, you know, right. creative process, the prototyping, the actual producing them. You know, we can get shoes out pretty quickly compared to how long it takes to do a really well-designed research study with enough right. uh, participants. Yeah, there, I mean, there was a really interesting article in Outside that was kind of tongue-in-cheek about the Vaporfly, I think, and it was like, hey, you know, we're going to come up with this revolutionary shoe that sort of combines maximalism with a carbon plate with um, something else. And it's like, well, all of those have been done uniquely and individually before. It's just combining them. And um, so I think that isn't limited to just, you know, the Nike shoes. Like, I think of some of the other footwear brands and what they'll be coming out with in the next few months, um, yeah. they're going to be similar. And they, hopefully, in some cases, they're going to push the line in a different way. Hoka released a shoe recently. It's a downhill-only shoe. That's really interesting. I mean, they're just trying to push the barrier somewhere. Mm-hmm. We actually at BOA, we are working on publishing a study where we actually saw an improvement in lateral performance, basically changing direction quickly yeah. um, with a certain configuration. And so... For me to say any of these other technological advances are bad because they improve performance would be kind of hypocritical since I'm working on that too. Um, But yeah, the regulation at some point, we just have to come in and agree on where that line is and what are the reasonings behind that line. Yeah. Well, that's 
just in general, when you argue with somebody, I find sometimes you have to take a step back and, and decide, are you even coming from the same like ontological perspective? Like do, is the basis of your, your opinions of what reality is or your facts on what reality is, are you arguing from the same place? Uh-huh. For sure. You know, it's like if you're not arguing from the same place, then there's no point in arguing because you're probably not going to come to a mutual agreement at any point in time. Um, most I'm going to jump back over to you. I want to talk a little bit about what kind of research you're doing right now. Um, I think I saw on your website you had, had I, I just copied down the, the title. This is the effects of static stretching on muscle activation and force capacity. Um, but I couldn't find a link to like ResearchGate or anything like that from that. Um, so I didn't get any details, uh, but so I have to ask, is static stretching back in? I thought we killed it off several years ago. Um, why are you looking into it? Oh, okay. So <laughs> the first manuscript of probably two total um, that I'm working on for my PhD, at least in this topic, is in revision. So we're working on it. Okay. Uh, but really... We, yeah, like you said, we know static stretching is probably not ideal before performance, especially explosive performance like sprinting, throwing, um, you know, vertical jumping, anything you want to do that requires a lot of uh, power and a short amount of time. Right. So uh, I worked with someone who actually came from like a yoga and therapeutics background okay. when I started my PhD. And she was really interested in applying self-massage or, you know, like foam rolling using a lacrosse ball, anything like that, where you're just kind of massaging the tissues yourself versus, you know, say getting a massage from a practitioner. Right. And that can actually improve the amount of force or torque that you produce with the muscle. And so it's kind of this crazy combination of, well, these two things have opposite effects on power or force production. Ta talking about static stretching and massage. Mm. But everyone thought that they might produce these results through the same mechanisms. So by increasing the extensibility of the tissues or, you know, like how compliant or stretchy your muscle and tendon unit are. So we decided to take our methods that we use in our lab pretty frequently to study all different types of things, whether it's multiple scler sclerosis, uh, aging, anything that impacts the nervous system and its ability to control muscle force. Mm -hmm. And so we actually record muscle activity and can decompose those signals to look at how individual neurons are activating portions of the muscle. So we use that technique to try and take a look under the hood at uh, these mechanisms underlying stretching and stretching when you apply massage uh, kind of right beforehand. So okay. that's how I got interested in stretching. It's not something that if you ask me like, oh, what do you wanna do your PhD in when you're studying how people move? I don't think I would have been like, ooh, stretching for sure. Stretching uh, for sure. <laughs> it's, it's kind of a crazy thing because it's so basic, but we still don't understand what is happening in terms mm -hmm. of why we have those deficits in performance. Uh, so big takeaway, just to boil it down to what you can actually apply mm -hmm. uh, if you're trying to go for a maximal performance, is if you want to increase flexibility, but not decrease your force production or your ability to do a maximal activity of some sort. You can static stretch, but also apply some light massage. So I like to apply it to hurdling. So I'm, I've been training for the steeplechase when outdoor track season comes around each year yeah. uh, for the past two years. And 
after the winter, I'm pretty stiff. So I really need to get into like hurdling condition. Yep. So I'm not about to go do some hurdle run throughs while not having enough flexibility in my hips, but I also don't want to decrease my force output while I'm hurdling. So I can do a combo of static stretching and some light massage and get that improved range of motion, not uh, decreasing performance at all. Okay, so we're bringing static stretching back. It hasn't completely died off. You're reviving it, is what you're telling me. It can be useful. Okay, okay. It's just, like you said, we don't necessarily have all of the information yet on why, is, on why things work. So it's like, it's kind of interesting to see. Um, have you guys ever been out, like, it could be at the track or trail, whatever, and you'll see somebody, say, in their 50s or 60s, and they're doing a routine from, like, the 70s, like it's like a 70s. They've been doing that same stretching routine since the 70s, and they haven't changed. It's almost like a time capsule of, like, the recommendations from that era, and then you'll see somebody a little bit younger, and they're doing something different, and then, like, you guys are doing something different, and you can see the, like, changes based on what seems like sometimes hunches of, like, no, we've had, like, you know, this track club does this routine and they do better. So we should all do that when we don't necessarily have all of the data in. Are you familiar with um, Dr. Keith Barr at UC Davis? I think it's Davis. Uh, I don't recognize the name, but I'm horrible at names. So Okay, that's okay. I, I had him on the show a little while ago and he he, um, he does more work with, um, see if I can remember this right, like studying the relationship between um tendon elasticity and muscle function so he has recommendations on like the things you should do for basically like you guys probably already know you know tight tendons loose muscles and like the various changes and how that affects performance and that kind of stuff it seems similar to kind of what you're doing so i didn't know if you'd come across any of his papers as you're like looking through stuff um so you bought you guys both are uh coaching or coach people correct Mm -hmm. so i want to ask a little bit about that um the first thing i just want to ask is do you have when you have people come to you do you guys see any common like pitfalls or things that a lot of people continue to, to do that you're like all right we need to like get rid of this this is what we should be doing instead that's a good question does anything stand up yeah <laughs> um, especially in, in people that are not younger like we've coached people i'd say everything from like 18 years old to um middle-aged older adults yeah. that just have various goals and i would say one of the things that you definitely see with people that maybe didn't grow up doing running as part of a sport or doing whatever triathlon um as part of a team they usually don't have much intensity and mm -hmm. so there isn't a lot of periodization to their week and so i find with um people that haven't done that it's really potent even just one day of higher intensity and one longer day per week suddenly can make them quite a bit faster. Like we had someone go from, um, I don't want to misquote their first time. I, want, I think they were a 405 marathoner to a 338 marathoner in mm -hmm. like six months. And it was really just with the guidance of having slightly longer long runs and some intensity. Mm -hmm. um, so I think that's the one thing I would see that comes up a lot. And then the second is just keeping your easy days really easy mm -hmm. and your hard days hard. That's true. I see a lot of blending of those two things. So I guess it all comes to the same point of having that periodicity in your training over the course of a day, week, month, et cetera. What do you guys use as a baseline for when you're trying to set up your 
zones, I guess I'll call them. You know, there's all the kind of different terminologies. Um, I grew up with like, you know, easy pace, long run pace, tempo, threshold. But then it's like that; those get blended too. So you can say like zones or heart rates or whatever. Like, what what do you guys use as your your baseline for setting up all these different um, speeds uh, for your athletes to go through? Well, we usually start out um, like if it, someone has no background in running, for example but they want to get into it. They want to try and finish a 10 K or a five K, you know, just complete it. Um, but we want to include intensity, but maybe they have no idea what pace feels like, you know, you don't want them checking their watch every 10 seconds. Uh, instead we go by RPE or like rating of perceived exertion. Mm -hmm. That's our go-to for just getting someone going kind of feel out their, um, different intensities and figure out really what a maximum intensity is for say like one minute of running. Uh, and then usually from there, we kind of move into a combination of effort and pace. Um, we each kind of, we have our own, uh, individuals that we coach and bounce ideas off of each other. But, um, do you have anything you want to say about how you move people forward? Yeah, I agree. I think my goal sort of whenever I'm coaching somebody is to get them to be more um, autonomous. So one of the things that's always worked well for my running is really knowing um, what effort and what pace should feel like. Mm -hmm. And so for sure, if someone's a beginner, that that mismatch is probably going to be a lot more pronounced. So you might say, okay, we're going to start with this, you know, effort. Maybe you have heart rate or maybe you just have their RPE and then kind of adjust over time. But then as you start working with a more and more advanced athlete, I think the goal should be um, more that they should know what a five minute or a 30 minute or an hour repeat should feel like. Mm -hmm. And then we'll see based on their current fitness, their current fatigue levels, what the output is. Um, so I really like to preach, like my big go-to is like being comfortably uncomfortable. Um, I think if people can get to that feeling and they know it, where that line is and they can ride that line for a long time, um, I'm super happy because I think they've started to learn a lot about their bodies. Mm -hmm. I, I often so i do another show do i just talk about running stuff um and i kind of preach rpe as well so i'm in that camp with you um but i also know i have my college roommate who ran with me um he has the hardest time with rpe it's like <laughs> it's like he's a robot he's not a robot he has plenty of feelings but it's just like <laughs> he, he's glued to his watch to tell him what his pace is and all that kind of stuff he just has the toughest time figuring out what a pace feels like how have you worked with anybody like that and if you haven't how would you try to transition him from clock watching to going from to feel that's tough i don't think i've personally worked with anyone who was glued to the the garmin pace yeah when he's in in, in keeping my you know now much longer but um at the time you know it's not like he had just stepped into running. He ran all throughout high school, you know, all through college. So it, he wasn't brand new to it either. So, you know, you can, if somebody's new, you can kind of chalk it up to that. Like, hey, you're just not familiar with how your body feels at different effort levels or even different period, you know, going from base to build, you know, bumping up the speed. Maybe you're a little rusty. It, it just seems to have a hard time with it. And we, we had that conversation over and over and over again, trying to figure out, how to communicate that feel to him. And it just never quite stuck. I think it's interesting. I've coached one person I can think of or two in particular that didn't really do that feel very well. And I think there are two different problems, kind of what you were just um, adhering to. One is a newer runner, I think, 
has a lot smaller gray area between easy run and maximal run pace. So I think for them, it's just harder to settle into a tempo, um, a fast day, an easy day. I think that's one set of issues. And I think Mm -hmm. that's a little bit easier to solve. I think somebody that has been running or training, cycling, whatever, for a long time, but really just needs those numbers, I think is a different uh, set of circumstances. And I think for the right person, maybe they that person just always needs to be data-driven. Um, but I think things that can be really helpful are like, hey, you know what, just do a run without your watch. Look at the clock before you leave and when you come back. Um, why don't you try and do some of these repeats where you don't actually get the feedback until the very end? Um, one of the books that Melissa and I really like is from Percy Cerutti, the great um, Australian coach. So he coached you know, guys back in the 50s and 60s that were running you know, low 13 minutes for three miles at the time, like Murray Halberg. Um, and he really preached that like the time that you run or the pace that you run is um, shouldn't be your input. He His big thing was we should run hard for five minutes and we'll see what the time is. Mm-hmm. And I think if you can start getting people into believing that, uh, then that can be part of a solution. But mm-hmm. for some people, you know, maybe they do just need a data-driven approach um, more so than others. Yeah, that's fair. And, and that's one thing I just don't know is how often we were able to just like take the watch away from him and just be like, yeah, you just, you got to struggle through it. It's, 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 it's yeah. that comfortably uncomfortable in a different kind of situation where uh-huh. you don't have that crutch anymore. And, uh, you know, I don't know that I could convince him to do it nowadays. I don't know that there's a whole lot of incentive. Right. Uh-huh. Um, but it would, I think it would be interesting to see too. I'm always, I always kind of wondered, um, and, Michael, I love you if you watch this, but and he knows he he has like no musical ability at all. And I have a musical background. So I always kind of wondered if like the way I feel running has to do with like the, the rhythm of my legs and the, the rhythm of my breathing in conjunction with the legs and kind of how my body is moving. And I kind of wondered at times whether my music background kind of played a part into how I felt my body versus him and he just doesn't have that connection whether that was the divide the divide excuse me or or you know where the kind of disjointed um I lose my words but you know where the cutoff was or the breakoff where he just wasn't getting it i definitely don't have a musical background but yeah <laughs> so like i grew up swimming and um especially in like late 90s early 2000s it was all just about like swim as much as you can mm-hmm. uh, every single day and so i think that helped me kind of figure out you know in swimming in contrast to running your feel for the water is i think varies so much from day to day um but you know even little things like just subconsciously knowing the number of strokes you're taking per lap how each stroke feels. I think all of those, like when you're doing them for so long and you do so many hours of swimming, you start figuring out what's sustainable and what isn't. Um, I know I also, when I was younger, had this like like much younger in my teens. If I would do a running race, I would just go out so, so hard. Mm-hmm. And I felt like I figured out through just always dying, like what the appropriate amount of hard was to go out, which is one way, to, I guess, to come to that lesson. Yeah, <laughs> that reminds me of, you know, a lot of people go through that, but that reminds me of in eighth grade, this is the very first year of cross country for me. You know, we had t-shirts and I don't know if you guys were this way, but everybody was always excited about the team t-shirts. Yeah. Eighth grade, high school, it didn't matter. And our coach that year made sure the, the quote on our shirt was 
go out like a dog, die like a hog. And we did, I don't think we all quite understood what that meant yet, but, it was, <laughs> but we really loved the quote. That's so, funny. I like so, that one. Yeah, I like yeah that. so I, I come back to that. Yeah. Our dog likes to take runs out pretty hard. Yeah. So. <laughs> they just like sprint out the door and then they start falling back. Um, as we kind of run short on time, um, you guys may notice if you didn't watch all the way to the end with Travis, you probably don't know this. Um, but this season, I'm asking everybody the same question. Since I got two of you, I'm happy I'm going to get two answers. Um, <laughs> but I'm asking everybody this year, what do you think the purpose of sport is? Can you go first or second? Second. Okay. <laughs> um, I think sport for every person has a, a different purpose. I think for some people, it fills some sort of desire and need to figure out what the absolute best something you can be is i know for me like just the continuous sort of sisyphean task of figuring out how fast can you be um, is something that's really rewarding i think it's also has a beautiful aspect of bringing people together and connecting people from different backgrounds different abilities into a common goal so whether that is you're racing each other but at the end of the day um you know unless it's really for a professional prize you're you're both there to kind of support each other and I really saw that like last year running California International Marathon. There were like 100 guys trying to go for the Olympic trial standard. Um, and halfway through, it was this really cool thing, sort of the opposite of a prisoner's dilemma, where we were all there actually kind of helping each other. Like uh, it wasn't like there were only a finite number of spots. And so I think things that do bring a bunch of people together to be their best is one of the best uh, sort of embodiments of sport. Sure, that's a good one. The marathon. I uh, spectated the marathon by bike, and it was okay. super cool just seeing the humongous groups. Um, yeah, everyone had like the warm fuzzies, kind of <laughs> yeah, like chills watching all these people work together, pass bottles around. Uh, it was pretty neat. Uh, let's see. I would say the purpose of sport is, you know, when I think of sport, I think of two things. One is teamwork and really building that bond with other people, and there aren't that many cases in you know modern life where you get that sort of bond with other people. Maybe in the workplace, you have a pretty good relationship with your coworkers, but nothing really replaces like the physical effort, like getting those endorphins and, and pushing each other to do something that's really challenging. And I think if sport had to be individual, that's kind of, especially in this quarantine time, this last like two months, mm -hmm. I've been kind of exploring that other side of it where it just becomes about creating something that's challenging each day for yourself and setting small goals that you move yourself forward and become a slightly better human being, whether it's physically or mentally or, you know, mastering some skill. And it's just those, those small steps forward where you're challenging yourself and eventually you become so good at something that it's like play right and that's i think that's every athlete's goal is just to become so good at something and enjoy it so much that it's all joy some yeah. great answers some new some new stuff too that's and that's one of the things i love about asking that question is because it sport affects us all so much differently it's like you know i've got my own personal reasons but then everybody else has their own reasons and it's like but yeah like you said it's one of the few places where we can kind of come together and be a collective unit 
you know, working towards a common goal and share that bond. So it's anyway, thanks for, thanks for the thoughtful answers. Um, Dan and Melissa, where can people find you if they want to get in touch with you, coaching, see what you're up to, any of that kind of stuff? Well, you can uh, check me out on Instagram and Twitter. My Instagram handle is mmazo, M-M-A-Z-Z-O. And uh, my Twitter handle is melmazo, M-E-L-M-A-Z-Z-O. I am absolutely horrible at actually posting, but I'm (laughs) Feeney, F-E-E-N-E-Y, 31, on both Instagram and Twitter. Um, and we have a, our dog social media is Leela the Lobo. I think we spend more time posting for her than for us. Probably. Um, and then for coaching, we, uh, Velocity Canyon Endurance Project is the name of the coaching company that we run. So if you just Google that, you'll find it. And we have some social media for that as well. But um, yeah, always love to talk to people about whatever, everything from athletics to philosophy to statistics, whatever. So. <laughs> But I'll have you guys back on because, like, I we can go pretty deep on philosophy sometimes. So, sounds good. Thanks for spending some time with Dave with me, guys. Thank you. Yeah, thanks.